So I've had multiple conversations with people this week who have uh, read ahead in John chapter 13 and realized what was coming. And um, a few individuals said, hey, um, are, you, are you teaching through John 13 this week? And I said, yeah, why? Well, you know that's uh, Mother's Day, right? And I said, yep. And, and you know that that's the part where Satan enters into Judas, right? And I said, yep. So welcome to New Hope. And glad to have you here. This is your first time. This is what we do. So we've been working through the book of John for quite a long time now. We're 35, 38 weeks into it. And uh, we're just finishing up chapter 13 today, so there's a few more chapters to go. Um, This particular part where we're at this morning uh, causes us to go back to where we were at last week. Jesus did the foot washing. The disciples are in the upper room, and it's the Last Supper. It's just about the time when he's about to be arrested, and the disciples are just kind of blown away by what's just happened, as we saw last week. They're astonished that Jesus, the rabbi, would put on the clothes of a slave and wash their feet, and they don't know what to deal, what to do with that. So we're going to go into John 13 this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn there and just kind of hold your, your place there for a, a moment. I'm going to pray with you, and we're going to take a look at a passage from Galatians. I have a very specific question I want to ask you this morning, and a little participation, a little group feedback, so somebody can throw out the answer when I ask the question in just a minute. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we step into this really remarkable time in which you speak to us through your word. You said your word is alive, and it is active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and that it divides the thoughts, and it causes us to ponder where we stand in relation to you. So God, we recognize what we have before us is, is sharper than a surgeon's scalpel, because you can go right to the core of who we are, our soul. God, I ask that in this moment that it would be you who speaks, and that the power of your Holy Spirit would not only be present, but that you would be our teacher and that you would be our instructor, and that your word would indeed be alive for us, and that you would cause us, every individual, to see the specific application this has to our life. And only you can do that, Father. So we lift this time up to you, and we ask in Jesus' name that you would bless this. Amen. So, how do you identify someone who belongs to Jesus. Because Scripture says an individual who belongs to Jesus, who is a true Christ follower, will stand out to the rest of the world for a very specific reason. How, if you, for instance, had someone come up to you on the street, maybe a coworker, someone who knew that you were a believer in Christ, if you are, and would say to you, how can you tell me to identify a Christ follower what would be one word you would say to them that you could respond by saying, well, it's by actions, love, right? All those things are fruit of the Spirit. The fruit. Is there evidence in a person's life that shows that they're really a follower of Christ? Now let me take you to a passage before we get to John 13 that sets this up. Because what we're going to be looking at this morning is this very issue. Galatians 5.19 says this. You'll see it up on the screen. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that word practice is a very important component of that passage because it means a habitual behavior. Somebody who's caught up in this and is making this a regular part of their life. Those first components from verse 19 to verse 21. The person who's practicing these things, they stand opposed to the things of God. But verse 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now if we go back to ancient times, to the time of just not long after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the Father, individuals within the church, as the church began to grow, started wearing certain kinds of clothing to identify themselves as Christians. They actually started cutting their hair in certain fashions as Christians. Think of the monks in the early church. Monks who shaved their head and left a little bit of hair on the side so that people could identify them as a monk. So individuals in ancient times did what we do now more in recent times in which we put certain kinds of clothing on that says, I'm a Christ follower on our shirts. Or we put little rubber bracelets on our wrists WWJD, we put bumper stickers on our car, we put little fish emblems on our trunk lid, and then we regret it when we cut somebody off in traffic if we remember that that's on our car. But we identify ourselves outwardly with these symbols, but we understand according to Scripture it's not outward symbols that really identify a person who belongs to Jesus. It's the inward actions The inner transformation has taken place. And so the things of the flesh are being put away and the things of the Spirit are evidencing themselves. The contrast couldn't be more stark than what it is this morning in the contrast in the upper room with the disciples who belong to Jesus and those who stand opposed to Him. And we're going to see that unfold in this passage this morning. No doubt the disciples in their minds are so preoccupied with what Jesus has just done, they've barely recovered from the astonishment of Him washing their feet when He drops a bombshell on them. And He tells them there's a betrayer in the room. Go with me to verse 18 of John chapter 13. Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is, the, it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So we got this celebratory environment. It's the Passover dinner. Every year the Jews get together and they celebrate what God had done in ancient Israel, delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. They get together for the, for the Passover, big celebration. That's what this environment is. And now this dark shadow falls across the room because Satan is about to enter the scene. And Jesus is dealing with a traitor in his very midst. It is scary to me, church, 
how close a person can come to becoming a follower of Christ, having all the truth and evidence in front of them, and yet willingly say, no, not there, not going to do it, not interested, thanks but no thanks. And Judas is going to be a prime example of that. So Jesus is saying, I do not speak of all of you. Why is he making this effort? Why is he going out of his way to point this out at this point? Because Judas was not a choice by accident. Jesus deliberately chose Judas to be one of his 12. And Jesus had full knowledge of what Judas was going to do. It was not a surprise to him, even though he knew he would betray him. That's why he's quoting Scripture. He's, God, Jesus himself, is quoting the Old Testament here. I don't know if you knew that. So he says, Scripture is going to be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. What's going on there? He's quoting King David from way back in the book of Psalms and in 1 Samuel. This is what happened. David had a confidant, an individual. I can barely pronounce his name. It's an ancient Hebrew name, Apithethel or something like that. Let me spell it for you. A-I-H-I-T-H-O-P-H-E-L. You try it. Apithethel, okay? Anyways, this guy betrayed David. And David said, my close friend, the one whom I put confidence in, has lifted up his heel against me. It's an ancient Hebrew way of saying, this one's about to stomp on me. He wants to crush me. So Jesus, like David, is lamenting this loss. And he's saying, I'm telling you this in advance before it comes to pass so that you will believe that I am he. Why did he need to do that? It's the night of Jesus' arrest. He knew the disciples would fail. He knew that doubt would fill their mind. And he's saying, in advance, I'm telling you, Judas is going to do this, and he didn't name him yet. He's saying, there's someone in our midst, and you're going to know in advance, and I'm telling you this in advance so that when it comes to pass, it's going to cause you to believe. Why? Because Jesus quoted Scripture, and he's rooting the promise in God's ancient prophecy in which David spoke from Psalms. Look with me up on the screen, Psalms 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is rooting what's happening in Scripture, causing the disciples so that they can go after the fact to the point of believing. Why is that necessary? Jesus is about to be killed. And if he is the leader of their group, and they're watching everything crumble around them, they're at the point of doubting whether or not what they're part of is even real, Jesus is saying, you'll understand after the fact, this is going to help you believe that I am he. Go with me to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, at first, when you're looking at that, you, th you think, there appears to be no connection with that statement and the preceding verses. Why does he say that? Well, let's discover the link. He's been exhorting them, saying, follow my example. I've washed your feet. The way that I've served you, you're going to serve others. The way that I love you, you're going to love others. And in the midst of this, he's saying, I'm going to assure you that if you do this as the church, if you love other people the way that I loved you, you're going to be blessed as a result of it. You're going to receive blessing. And on the heels of that, he announces the betrayal. Why does he say, truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me? 
because he's identifying those who are really sent by him. In other words, don't let the actions of a traitor throw you off track from your mission. And it happens today in churches around the world. When a leader rises to a position and then fails miserably, the church begins to crumble because their attention is drawn off mission and they begin watching that individual as opposed to what God really called them to be in the first place. So Jesus is doing this exact same thing here. He's turning their attention away from the actions of the traitor and he wants to encourage them to build strong faith. That's why he rooted it in the word of God saying, you're going to come to understand this was all part of God's plan. This is all being carried out. Verse 21 When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And we really need to understand what this means when it says Jesus became troubled in spirit. I've been wrestling with this for two weeks. I hope it becomes as hard for you as it was for me over the last two weeks. And here's why. It's a good hard. It's a good hard. Because there's a new understanding of the nature and character of God in this passage right here when you understand what's really going on. This word that says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit is the Greek word tolrasso. And it means to be agitated. I've used this description before with you. Talk, think about your washing machine at home. You have an agitator in the center of your washing machine. It rotates back and forth. What does it do? It's stirring up the water. This word terrasso comes right from this meaning, agitate. And it means to be severely mentally or spiritually in turmoil to the degree that it's so visible to everyone around you they can see that you're going through trauma. It's used in the New Testament when the disciples were out in the boat in the middle of the night. If you're familiar with the story, they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and they see Jesus walking on the water and they're filled with terrasso. There's so much turmoil inside them, they don't know what to do with it. That's what's going on here in Jesus' spirit. So God, God God-man, is troubled. Why? Well, certainly because he knows the fate of of what awaits him in the next 24 hours. He knows the trauma that he's about to face, but there's more going on here. Uh, First of all, before I get too far ahead of myself, understand that the disciples at this point are so confused that they begin looking around the room, thinking inside their head, according to what John wrote. He's in his 90s when he wrote this. He's looking back and remembering. We're all looking around the room thinking, is it him? Is it him? Who could it possibly be? But they don't voice it. It just says they begin looking around the room. Now, Jesus has talked about betrayers previously. He has talked about an individual who is going to come up against him, and yet they seem to have ignored it. They seem to have tuned him out. Now, here's why, I think. They've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They've seen him heal the sick, give blind eyes sight, So they're thinking, hey, what could possibly come up against him? He can handle a betrayer. But here he is the night before his crucifixion saying, the betrayer is in the room. So in the embarrassing silence that follows his statement, the disciples begin looking around the room, wondering, 
what is he talking about? Who could it possibly be? It is remarkable to me that Judas's identity was kept from everyone else right to the very end, even though Jesus knew specifically who it was, meaning that Jesus protected his identity up to the very hour of the betrayal. He's in close fellowship beyond comprehension. He got to do things you and I never got to do. He watched Jesus turn water into wine, to make food for thousands of people, to walk on the water, watch Lazarus raised from the grave. He saw things we never get to see. So he had this close fellowship. He's exposed to the same spiritual privileges everyone else has had. For crying out loud, Jesus has even washed his feet. And this is the individual who's in the room with Jesus. And we're told he's troubled in his spirit. Tarasso. Why? We learned in John 1.1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And by Him all things were made. Everything that was made was made through the hand of Jesus. God used Jesus, the Son, the third part of the Trinity, to speak into existence. We're told, according to the word, everything came into being. God breathed into man the breath of life, and he gave man a living soul, and he has a living soul in front of him. Judas, one of his own, whom he gave the breath of life to, who is willingly saying, no, I want no part of this. It breaks and crushes the heart of God when one of his created beings turns away and leaves him. And you see Judas doing this very thing here. No wonder Jesus is in turmoil as God-man, visible anguish, and it caught the attention of everyone in the room. Jesus is in turmoil. So what he sees in front of him is perceptible evil. The same evil that Satan brings, it's the power of Satan to deceive one of God's own, someone that God had personally selected. And we're told according to Scripture, 2 Peter said, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Judas is saying no. Now I understand that if you confront evil in your life this way, and I'm sure that if you're a Christ follower, you will. It is not weakness on your part to feel a sense of turmoil and angst when evil is present. I felt it myself when I've been in the presence of individuals whom I know and they tell me they stand opposed to God and the things of Jesus. There is intense pain that Jesus is feeling here because of the sense of evil that is before him. Go forward with me into verse 23. Let's let this develop. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it, who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now remember, the disciples are already disoriented. Jesus has been talking about these allusions to his death, and they can't make sense of this. He's the promised one. They've watched people out in the streets saying, Yoshana, Yoshana. They're cheering Jesus on. 
And the disciples have seen all the miracles. They can't possibly make sense in their mind that he's going to die. So Peter, in typical Peter fashion, John, John, find out who. Who's he talking about? Using this hand of motion to him, according to what John remembers here. Now understand, the son of perdition, and that's what Scripture calls him, Judas's name is the son of perdition, according to the Bible, is so good at his role. He's fooled everyone so well that even up to the last moment, he dares to fake a question when Jesus has made that statement. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 26, 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely, Master, it is not I. Does that sound like a fruit of the Spirit? You're looking at deception incarnate, church. That is not a fruit of the Spirit. Surely, Master, it's not me. Can you imagine the tension in that room that Jesus was feeling? How would you like to respond to that question? Now, customarily, at most meals, people sat just like we do today. In the first century, they sat at a table. But on very special occasions, and this was a special occasion because it's Passover meal, it was encumbrant upon people who attended a feast like this to recline on a mat. I want to explain this to you because Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper really messed people up when they see his painting. You remember da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper? He's got Jesus sitting in a blue robe with blonde hair, and he's doing the Boy Scout salute, got his hand up in the air, okay? And then he's got John sitting next to him, like he's fainting over against Jesus. It's kind of a creepy painting, actually, when you look at it, if you understand what's really going on here. So they, typically in the first century, there's a big table, and it's maybe only 10 or 12 inches off the floor. And every individual who came to the table had their own mat that they laid on. It was a very comfortable mat. And they would go down on the floor, and they would lay on their left side and support themselves with their left arm. And using that, they could use their right hand to feed themselves. Now, apparently, Jesus is to the left of John. And so when, John's, when Peter says to John, Hey, John, find out who. Who's he talking about? All John has to do is lean back and say, Jesus, who are you talking about? Jesus responds, I'm about to show you. I'm going to give a morsel to an individual, and you'll know who it is. Now, Judas knows he's about to be exposed he has a choice. He's confronted with a glaring opportunity here. Rush forward with his plot, or he can repent. He's got God in the room. He can come right before Jesus and acknowledge what he's done, and no one would be the wiser. Only Jesus knows at this point. He can beg forgiveness. Let's see what happens. Verse 26, Jesus then answered, that is the one, he's answering John now, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. In the first century, giving a portion of your meal to an individual who was seated next to you was a very, very high honor. As a matter of fact, the host of the meal, which is what Jesus was, he's the one that made all of the arrangements for this meal. For the host of the meal to arrange to give a piece to someone sitting next to them highly esteemed this individual. 
Now, Jesus must have spoken in such a low tone that the rest of the room did not hear what he said to John. Otherwise, I can see Peter jumping across the table to take out Judas. But apparently, that's not the case because they don't know what's going on here. Up to this point, Judas could change his course of action. He could totally change, but he chooses not to. So what we're talking about here when he's dipping the morsel is this. At a Passover meal, there was always flat bread, unleavened bread it's called. And this unleavened bread was used to dip some of the lamb's meat out of the pot for the host of the meal to take this flat leavened bread and scoop in and pull out some of the meat and hand it to the person on their left. Exalted that person for the rest of the room. So, Judas has had his feet washed by the master. He's been seated next to the master, close enough for Jesus to reach over to him. And now he's being exalted by being handed this food. Can you say your God is long-suffering, that he is not willing that any should perish? You're watching the mercy of your God reaching out to this traitor who's about to betray him. This is the way that was summed up by F.F. Bruce. He's a theologian. I love his writings. I want you to see what he observed about this. Satan could not have entered into him had he not granted him admission. Had he been willing to say no, the adversary, no to the adversary, all of his master's intercessory power was available to him there and then to strengthen him. So what we're witnessing here is the climax of the sifting of an individual. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I tell you the truth, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. What happens during the sifting process? Something gets ground. And we're watching the climax of it here with Satan working on Judas. And at this moment, the flames of hell are licking against this man's heels and he apparently is completely unaware of what's going on. And this statement that is chilling is made here. Satan entered him. There's only one other place in the entire Bible I have looked. You cannot find any other place in the Bible where Satan enters an individual except the Antichrist. Judas is possessed by Satan himself. Every other possession is demon possession. You're looking at Satan taking control of this environment because apparently it's such a big deal. He doesn't trust any of his demons. He's stepping into it himself. And Judas has opened himself up to complete satanic control. And Scripture comes to light once again because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. So instead of it breaking him when he is handed the morsel and when Jesus washes his feet and when he's brought into the seat of honor, instead of that softening his heart, it only hardens him. So Jesus in response says, what you do, do quickly. Meaning, get on with it. Leave immediately. Go as quickly as possible. Once Judas leaves the room, it seals his fate. And there is no point of return from this point forward. He can't come back. Understand, just so we're really clear on this, he has God in the room and he willingly chooses Satan. I don't know what you do with that. No doubt John is confused by this information. 
He's, he's heard what Jesus had to say, and before he can do anything, he's so stunned, Jesus sends Judas out of the room. Get out of here, Judas. Whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, meaning what you're going to do, do quickly. Verse 29, for some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Judas opens the door to leave and John in his 93-year-old mind has this image so seared in his conscience that when he looks back on this moment, he remembers Judas walking out the door and seeing the blackness veiled around the city skyline. And Judas is gone. The next time we see Judas again is when he's leading the guards into arrest Jesus. The very evening salvation is announced because what's about to happen now is Jesus is going to explain the Lord's Supper, communion to the disciples, but he doesn't want the betrayer in the room, so he sends the betrayer out before he ever explains it. But the opportunity for Judas has ended, and hell has arrived for him. And it's a sad, sad moment. Now you understand why Jesus was in turmoil. Judas is the living proof of God's patience and mercy and loving kindness And it shows us in vivid detail that even in the midst of God at work, Satan is also at work, right in the heart of God's people. And Jesus was dealing with it straight on. Verse 31, this is where it begins to wrap up. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. If you go back and circle the number of times the word glorify occurs there, you'll come up with five. Now, we know that Jesus didn't waste words. He's not being superfluous here. It must be something really significant because especially it's one of the last statements he ever makes. The cross is only hours away. We're seeing here that Jesus views his death in terms of glorification. How does that happen? The use of glorify five times here. So if if I said this to you, after the service is done, I'm going to go over to the mall and shop. And and when when the service is completely out, I'm going to shop at the mall. And I'm going to the mall because they have the best deals there. But by the way, I'm going over to the mall. And I'll be shopping there because that's where I want to be is at the mall. You'd think I want you to know I'm going to the mall, right? Okay? Why would Jesus say this five times right here? Because he really wants us to understand. In what is before him, what is before him in the next couple hours is this deep humiliation. You understand that the paintings of Jesus on the cross, even Mel Gibson's production, The Passion of the Christ, in all those essences, it's captured incorrectly. When the Romans crucified a man, they stripped him naked. So Jesus is on the cross in deep humiliation. His beard has been ripped from his face. He's been beat with a cat of nine tails and with rods, and then they took this three-inch crown of thorns and shoved it into his skull with this understanding of this deep humiliation that's ahead of him, this severe pain. We're talking physical torment. 
the heavy accusations. The grave is before him. How does he in this condition say, now the Son of Man is glorified? How could you say that in that setting? Because the cross becomes the supreme glory of God. Because the Son completely carries out the will of the Father and the purpose of God is completed in Him. And so now, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified, so Jesus says, if God is glorified, God will also glorify Him, meaning Jesus, meaning He's looking beyond the cross, church. He's looking to the moment where He steps back into heaven again. Verse 33, he says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children, understand, is a really affectionate way of speaking at individuals in in your close social circle in the first century. It's a very affectionate term. So Jesus is being comforting to them, and it recalls the words that he said to the Jews Earlier in John chapter 8, we saw Jesus say, hey, where I'm going, you can't come, and you will seek me, and you will not find me. Why did he say that to them? Because they were not believers. But to the disciples, he says, where I'm going, you can't come, but you're going to come later. You'll see that in just a moment. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is one of the parts that I've most wrestled with over the last couple weeks because I have to measure myself here. First of all, why is this a new commandment? Jesus says it's a new commandment. He's laying out exactly what He expects of us, exactly what He expects of New Hope Church to do until He comes again. He says, you're going to love each other to the same degree that I loved you. So he's presenting a really high standard here, and here's the truth. We face a remarkably intimidating challenge because he just said, you're to love me and I'm to love you in the same way that Jesus loved us. Anybody want to say they've made it there? Okay. I, I, I just, I look at this and it crushes me because that's what Jesus' commandment. It it rates right up there with, you will not kill, you will not commit adultery, you will not steal. This is God giving a commandment, a new commandment. So if you want to carve it in stone next to the Ten Commandments, you can. Here's the truth. To love like that is impossible. It is completely impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life because it's a fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're told according to Scripture. We just read this, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So to love like Jesus loved requires the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't have the Holy Spirit in your life unless you belong to Jesus. And therefore, it's a fruit by which everybody watching you, and if you look very closely at what Jesus said, He didn't say, all the believers at New Hope Church will know that you love each other. He didn't say all of the people who go to church. What did he say in verse 35? By this, all men will know. Meaning believers and non-believers alike. Everyone will know that you belong to Jesus because you got the fruit of the Spirit in you that says 
hey, I love that person like Jesus loved that person. I want to wrap it up this morning by just closing with a couple quotes for you. And I don't want you to miss this, so if you find yourself fading in and out or reaching for your car keys, just zone in on this last moment, okay? These last couple quotes here are really significant, or I wouldn't have included them. This first one's from D.A. Carson. He says this, The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Amen. That's the truth. We really do get embarrassed when we read these passages and we see the way that Jesus loved. And he says, you're going to love people back the same way. So this next one comes from Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer is an author who died a few years back, but he was really at his game in the 1970s writing material. One of his big ones was The Mark of a Christian. Two very practical ways that Christians can evidence love for one another. First one, be willing to apologize and seek forgiveness. You've offended someone, you find them, and you apologize and seek forgiveness, especially people within the body, to the degree that Jesus actually said, hey, you know, if you ever find yourself in church, he said this in Matthew 5, you ever find yourself in church and you're going up to the altar and you're going to make an offering to God, leave your offering right there and turn around if you remember that you have an offense against somebody and go and find your brother that you offended or that has an offense against you and make it right with them, and then come back and present your offerings at the altar. And then God will receive it. So that's a pretty big deal for Jesus to say that. And the second one is to grant forgiveness. If we can get those two nailed down, we'll we'll be the kind of church that you can't build a building big enough for because people will be streaming in the door when they see that kind of love. This is what God is calling us to. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So here's truth. We may be really accurate in teaching doctrine here. And we may be energetic in the proclamation of the truth. But none of that persuades if we miss the love component. People will just know us for doctrine and for proclamation, but not for what Christ called us to. So he said this is such a pure form that everybody whom you go to work with every day, whom you run into at Myers when you go shopping, everyone whom you go to school with that you run into on the university campus, they're going to know whether or not you're a believer by the way you love each other. This is the way that Francis Schaeffer summed it up. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you, and, whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love towards all Christians. So the disciples in the upper room at this moment are going to need this kind of deep love in the hours that are before them as everything collapses around them. They're only going to have each other. Their master is about to be taken away, and they've been given new marching orders. So, we come to this passage and we see this last verse, Peter's response, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, what? Out of that huge statement about loving each other, this is what Peter gets? Where are you going? 
Why are you leaving? He missed completely the new commandment component. How come you're going to leave us alone? There's confusion here, and there's panic. But Jesus says, hey, where I'm going, you cannot go, but you will follow later. And this is the thought I want to leave you with. Jesus said that to Peter and to the rest of the guys in the room, knowing that Peter is just about to betray him, and he's going to run the other way. And that Philip is going to begin questioning. And Thomas is going to doubt. And all the disciples are going to scatter to the wind. And yet Jesus said, you will follow later. See, it's not yet time for them to inherit the kingdom God has promised them. But Jesus knows they're going to come back with such a force that they're going to turn the world upside down for Christ because of the way they love each other and the way they advance the kingdom. So Jesus is saying, even though you fail, you will follow later. You know what that reminds me of, church? It reminds me of Romans 8.38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These individuals are about to face Threats on their life that they have never known before because Christ has called them to advance the kingdom in a way they could never have expected, that they love each other to the degree that the rest of the world says, wow, there is something remarkable about those people. I want to know more. I'm going to pray for you right now as we take on this week that this stuff not quickly fade out of our mind. And that's only going to happen through the power of the Spirit. So would you pray with me? I'll ask God's Spirit to do that for us. Father, we've been privileged to be able to look into Your Word today and to ponder what it means specifically to us. What does it mean tomorrow when we step back into the classroom? When we step back into the office environment or when... Individuals are working at home, caring for the needs at home. Father, specifically I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would cause us to be in such a place where we remember these things throughout this week ahead of us. Father, not just this day and not just tomorrow, but even seven days from now, through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us the responsibility that we have to love one another. And how gracious you are. Father, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week, church.